let me open up in a word of prayer and then we'll get started. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, for this beautiful morning, for the sunshine and the cool weather. And um, Father God, thank you for bringing us all here together. Thank you for all the hands that work so hard to make this morning happen, for Kenny setting up the chairs in the room, for Ali um, with all the paperwork, for Rachel for setting up the tables, and um, for all the ladies over in Wellspring Kids. And thank you this morning for Cameron. As she's coming to teach, she has prepared so well. Um, Father, I pray that we listen with hearts that want to learn and to grow. Father God, thank you for this morning. In your name, amen. So this morning, Cameron is coming to teach, um, but before Cameron does, Katie is going to share our disciplines with us. Good morning. What a joy and privilege it is to come together around God's Word this morning. I'm so grateful to be here. My name is Katie, and I've been participating in Wellspring for most of its years of existence, so it's been a blessing for sure. So this morning, let's start by refreshing our minds in the Wellspring Disciplines. If you grab your notebook, please, and turn it over. We're going to focus on the faithful woman that's seen in all three of our disciplines. The faithful woman is she who aims to do three things. Number one, the faithful woman is a woman of God who shepherds her heart worshipfully toward God through the word of God, and in particular, the gospel. Number two, our second discipline, the faithful woman of God is concerned for those in her home and ministers to them with her heart fixed on God and his word. And lastly, with a heart fixed on God and keeping her God-given ministry within her home a priority, the faithful woman of God steps into the church and every part of her life to shepherd others toward God and the gospel. So this morning, let's dive into the book of Luke and see an example of the discipline being played out. Uh, in my Bible reading, I came upon a passage to share with you today that demonstrates such faith combined with the right view of who Jesus is. So, may this Roman soldier, coined a centurion, in our passage spur us on as faithful women. We are going to look at Luke 7, if you want to follow along. And it's titled, The Faith of the Centurion. It's Luke 7, 1 through 10. When Jesus had finished saying all this to the people who were listening, he entered Capernaum. There, a centurion's servant, whom his master valued highly, was sick and about to die. The centurion heard of Jesus and sent some of the elders of the Jews to him, asking Jesus to come and heal his servant. When the elders of the Jews came to Jesus, they pleaded earnestly with him, This man deserves to have you do this because he loves our nation and has built us our synagogue. So Jesus went with them. Now, when Jesus was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to say to him, Lord, don't trouble yourself, for I do not even deserve to, come to have you come under my roof. This is why I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I myself am a man under authority with soldiers under me, I tell this one, go, and he goes. I tell that one, come, and he comes. I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And, he, and turning to the crowd, following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith, even in Israel. 
the man who had been sent, the men who had been sent returned to the house and found the servant well. Foremost, we cannot miss Jesus' character here. He is the healer, and he heals with just a word. Jesus spoke and heals from a distance with divine authority. Next, it is awesome to see the centurion's faith. This Roman soldier's faithful response demonstrates his understanding of Jesus' authority, his personal unworthiness, as well as shows his love for his servant. Those in my household, they need the healer to heal them from their sin. I, though equivalently unworthy as the centurion, can be faithful by God's grace to plead with the Savior to come and rescue the unsaved in my household. And I can faithfully trust his authority. The Wellspring Disciplines bring us to the Word to see ourselves appropriately with the goal not to stop at our heart, but to turn and impact our home and the church. Our faithfulness can be used by Jesus to impact others, and he can use us to share his life-giving gospel. So, my heart shepherding these days includes asking myself questions like this. Am I really taking quality time to pray for my children and their salvation? Does my parenting reflect complete trust in Jesus alone to save my children, or am I too focused on behavior modification? And outside my home, am I having conversations about God's truth with faithful women and spurring them on, or focusing on more temporal things? Lastly, am I willing to bring the gospel, which is totally offensive, to unbelieving friends and family who are dead in their sins, or am I being much too comfortable saying nothing? These questions and their answers really give a clear view of my heart. As faithful women, or you could better say as a woman who wants to be faithful, how I want to have the faith of the centurion that understands the supernatural ability and the commanding authority of Jesus. I must frequently recall my status as a sinner saved by grace. The centurion is seeing himself and Jesus rightly. So all the more we need heart shepherding, we need to be reminding each other of these truths and of our hope in Christ alone. So please pray while Cameron comes up to speak to us today and join me in prayer. Jesus, may you be glorified in us. May all of our efforts to pursue these wellspring disciplines to obey and to serve you. May they be pleasing to you, O Lord. Thank you for today, and may we learn from Cameron more about who you are and your word. Wellspring at 9.30 in the morning. It's great. Because I'm in Saturday Wellspring. It's still dark. You know what I'm saying? When someone gets up to speak, it's dark outside that window. So it's worth it every time in case you're considering taking Saturday Wellspring next year. It's still worth it. So <clears throat> today is a new Wellspring lesson for us. We are going to be covering a survey of six women in the Bible. Um, and this has been so helpful and encouraging for my own heart. So let's pray, and then we'll get started. 
Father, we come to you and we praise you for who you are, Lord, your holiness and your mercy, um, your grace to sinners like us. I pray right now that as we look at your word and as we look at these women, oh God, that our hearts would be impacted by them, that we would see them not as characters on a page, but as real life women who struggled and who set their hope on you and that we would want to emulate the things they did well and learn from the things they did not and ultimately that our hearts would just be spurred on to love you more, that we would know you more because of this time that we've spent in your word this morning looking at these women. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Well, if you'd like to turn in your Bibles to the book of Genesis, chapter 2, that is where we are going to begin to follow someone on social media, as many of you I'm sure know means that you subscribe or sign up to receive updates every time that person posts a picture or a message. For example, you can follow Mr. Hands Up on Instagram, an account owned by Andrew Stolito, who promises, as his account name suggests, to only post pictures with his hands up. Mm -hmm. Sure enough, in every picture that Andrew posts, his hands are up. He currently has 10,000 followers. The term follow in the world of social media is an appropriate term as it, as it reflects who influences our thoughts and our lives the most. And as Christian women, as believers, the choices we make about who we follow, about who influences our lives and our thoughts is critical. My hope today in surveying these women is that we find something in them to follow that is of infinitely, um, that is of infinite more value than Mr. Hands Up. Romans 15.4 says, Whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Writing this lesson and seeing how these women endured, seeing their theology, right, what they believed about God, and seeing the disciplines that we talk about every week in Wellspring lived out in their lives has spurred me on personally. But these women, as we're going to see, they were not perfect. They were sinners just like us. Um... And so we, we are actually instructed not just by their victories, but we are instructed by their failures. Um, so the goal today is that where they excelled, we would want to emulate their faith, and where they faltered, that we would want to learn from it. We're going to be going fast through this today, so we are going to be in multiple um, passages. I could write a whole lesson on just one woman. That was the hardest part of this for me. It's like covering women, women. Um, so we will be going faster that, so bear with me as we skip around. And also one note about a hermeneutic here. So we'll be looking at all narrative portions of scripture, stories. Um, and just because a character does something, just because a woman does something, doesn't necessarily make that right. And that's an important thing. I love this quote by Tom Pennington. He says, don't interpret narrative portions of scripture as normative. We should never assume that simply because a biblical character does something that it is right, or even if it is right, that we should imitate it. So just a note on that. And with that, we are going to begin. So the first woman on this list is arguably the most famous. We are going to look at Eve. Eve is the only person on our list today who began her life without any sin. We know a lot about her creation. We know a lot about her temptation and subsequent fall into sin. But outside of those two events, we know surprisingly little about Eve. 
right? We don't know, for example, how many children she had. We don't know how old she was when she died. In fact, in the entire Bible, we only see the name of Eve four times, twice in the Old Testament and twice in the New Testament. But from the two events that we do know about Eve's life, they are foundational to, to so much of what Scripture says, specifically about God's design for marriage and the role of women within marriage, which are some, th- some things that we're going to be talking about today. So the first thing on your outline that we learned from the life of Eve is that God's design for Eve was good. God's design for Eve was good. On day six of creation, God created the first man, Adam. But read what God says about Adam after his creation in Genesis 2, verse 18. It says, Then the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. In this perfect, sinless world, there was something missing about Adam. He, he needed something. He needed a helper, a helper fit for him, or some translations say a helper suitable for him. Literally in Hebrew, that word means corresponding to him. And so God creates Eve from one of Adam's ribs. And upon seeing his perfect compliment, Adam bursts out in this piece of poetry in verse 23. And he says, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. And this order of creation is important. Scripture references it again and again. Adam was created first to be the head of that marriage relationship. Sometimes I forget that Adam and Eve were married because they were just the only two people, but they were married, right? This was God's design for marriage. And Adam was created first to be the head of that relationship, and Eve was created next to be his helper. And that order is important. This was God's good design for marriage. And as As our husband's helper, as we know from the New Testament, wives are called not just to love their husbands, but to submit to them. Titus 2, which we talk about often in Wellspring, says that older women are to train the younger women to love their husbands and to be submissive to them. So note this idea of submission. It's not that every woman submits to every man. That wasn't God's design. But it is that every wife should submit to her own husband. Ephesians 5.22 says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And you'll find that exact verbiage in in other New Testament passage talking about um, submission within marriage. And there's a caution there, right, with submission to be careful who you marry. Because biblically, you aren't just called to love them. You will be called to follow them, to submit to them, to be their helper. Secondly, we see in your next point on your outline that the greatest danger to God's good design for Eve was her own heart. It was Eve's own heart. God had given Adam and, Adam and Eve one command. Um, they could eat of the fruit of all the trees of the garden except for the one in the midst of the garden. And we're going to start in Genesis 3 to see um, as an enemy comes on scene to disrupt this perfect world. So starting in verse 1 of chapter 3, says this, Now the serpent, who we know as Satan from the book of Revelation, was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. 
Note how Satan approaches Eve here. He says, did God actually say, and John Anderson actually just did a whole six-part series that was entitled this, about how people twist God's words. And this is what Satan does here. He begins by questioning the word of God. He twists God's actual words not to eat from any of the trees of the garden, right? Um, and then in, instead of just the one in the midst of it. But there's a progression here that, that Satan uses. It goes from skepticism, did God actually say, to flat-out contradiction. You will not truly die. God is a liar. And this, by the way, is still how Satan comes to us today, right? MacArthur says he questions the word of God, suggesting uncertainty about the meaning of God's statements, raising doubt about the truthfulness of what God had said, insinuating suspicion about the motives behind God's secret purposes, or voicing apprehension about the wisdom of God's plan. Satan tempted Eve to first question God's commands and then doubt the character behind those commands. So it's almost as though Satan held up a pair of glasses to Eve, right? And said, look at God through my, through my lens. He doesn't want what's good for you, Eve. He's withholding good from you. And Eve looks through that lens and she suddenly sees in this fruit that God is withholding good from her. She believes Satan over God and she is deceived and she eats the fruit. And very quickly, in the span of one verse here, her sin spreads to her household. So read with me in Genesis 3, 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. The entire creation immediately is plunged into sin. This is the fall. The ground is cursed with thorns. Bearing children is going to be painful. Adam and Eve are now sinners. They're cast out of the Garden of Eden. And from that moment on, all the world around them will bear the effects of corruption and sin, including their own bodies, which will now start to age and decay. Adam and Eve will surely die because God keeps his promises. But woven into the tapestry of the darkness of that day was a single shining bright golden thread. Read in Genesis 3.15 with me. This is right in the middle of God cursing Satan, God cursing the snake. And he puts a promise here and he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. On this dark day, right here, God makes this promise that someone will come one day to reverse the effects of the fall. The snake will bruise his heel, but he will bruise his head. Someone would come one day to destroy the destroyer, and that appointed one, that Messiah, would come through Eve. Such a kindness of God that even though it was through Eve that creation fell, he actually makes the promise come through her. It's her offspring. It's literally her seed. And that's glorious hope on a tragic day. So what do we learn from the life of Eve? We learn that our design as women is good to be a helper for our husbands, and not their head, to submit to them because we submit to the Lord. And if you're single or if you're widowed, right, this still applies to you. Because if God has marriage in your future, this, you need to know, this is what a godly marriage looks like. This is God's good design. And you want to look for someone to marry that you can not only love, but also submit to. This is God's good design when your friends are married, to counsel them. And the second thing we learn is that just as Eve was capable of such danger within her own heart, right? So are each of us. And listen, note the manner in which Eve sinned. 
It says she was deceived. When God confronts her, she says, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Unlike Adam, Eve did not, did not actually know that she was committing outright rebellion against God when she ate that fruit. She was deceived. There was a susceptibility in her to error that was different than in Adam. And how much more so are we susceptible to being deceived? That was Eve. She was perfect. She had no sin within her, and she was susceptible to being deceived. How much more us, when we have Jeremiah 17, 9, living inside of us, right? The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can understand it. That's living inside of us. How much more susceptible are we to being deceived by error, right? The world would love for us to look at God through its lens, even talking about submission and marriage, right? No, 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 see it through our lens. So how do we guard against this, right? Well, we have to know God's commands and we have to know his character so that we don't doubt the character from which those commands are issued. And we have to be reading our Bibles to do that. If you want to know the character of God, read the Psalms, right? Read about his steadfast love and his mercy and his kindness and his grace. And we're going to see quite a bit of that today in the lives of these women. And then you have to believe that character of God in order to not be susceptible um, to error. And this is where our wellspring disciplines start, right, in our hearts. Okay, turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11 as we move to the second woman on our list, Sarah. She is most famously known as Abraham's wife. She grew up in the urban city of Ur. She's 65 years old when we meet her, and even by the standards of those days, that would not have been considered young. 65 would have already been pretty old. We know that Sarah was beautiful everywhere that Abraham went. He was constantly afraid of a king taking Sarah to be his wife. That's how beautiful she was, even at 65, even at 75. Right after scripture introduces Sarah as Abraham's wife, and her name was Sarai um, in this passage, it tells, it makes one single statement about Sarai. So we're going to read in Genesis 11, verse 30. It says this, Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. It's almost to overemphasize the fact that Sarah was barren, that it says she had no child, right? This one statement sums up the first 65 years of Sarah's life. This would have been a constant source of heartache for her. It would have been a source of embarrassment or shame that she could not give Abraham a child. This was Sarah's life's defining struggle. She struggled with this, as we will see. We all have things like that in our lives. This was Sarah's. The first thing that we learn about Sarah on your outline is that she excelled in having a gentle and quiet spirit. A gentle and quiet spirit. In Genesis 12, just a few verses later, the Lord speaks to Abraham and tells him to leave Ur, to leave the city, and to go to a land that he had never known before, the land of Canaan. And he gives him a great promise. He, he promises to make of Abraham a great nation and to bless all the nations of the earth through him. And Abraham obeys. He, he goes. He leaves Ur and he makes the journey to Canaan. But listen, Sarah followed him. Sarah went with him. And in this passage, we don't see her voice a single word of complaint. This would not have been an easy journey. This would have been about 350 miles from Ur to Canaan, would have been on foot. Likely, they had a large caravan with all their things. It would have taken about six or seven weeks. And Sarah, remember, she was 65 years old, which was not young, and she wasn't used to the life of a nomad. She grew up in the city. But she follows Abraham, and everything in this text suggests that she not only went with him willingly, but even eagerly. 
I don't know if any of you have ever had the privilege of having your husband ask you to follow him to a distant and foreign land. <laughs> I have had that privilege. And it uh, was not easy. Uh, we did not go on foot. There were five planes and a helicopter with four small children. I'm pretty sure I voiced more than one word of complaint. It's not easy. Sarah was content to follow Abraham with a gentle and quiet spirit, as we're going to see even more so in 1 Peter chapter 3 when we talk about that in April. And we see this gentle and quiet spirit evidenced in her life elsewhere. She's actually in, in Genesis quite a bit, and we actually see her trusting God quite a bit. And the times where we see her trusting God is actually when she's not talking, when she's just trusting. There were so many things that Sarah was content to leave in God's hands, to leave in her husband's hands. But there was one thing that she did not do that with. That's the second point on your outline. It's that when it was most difficult, Sarah did not wait on God. She did not wait on God. When the Lord first told Abraham that he was going to make of him a great nation, Sarah probably had a lot of joy because that meant children. That meant the cure for her barrenness. Abraham's, he's going to make of Abraham a nation. I'm going to have ch children. But time went on. And Sarah struggled to wait on God's timing and to trust his plan. Ten years passed from when God first gave Abraham that promise. They'd been in Canaan for ten years, and she still wasn't pregnant. And the pressure of fulfilling that promise probably weighed on her shoulders like a heavy burden. That was all on her. Sarah could do a lot of things. She could follow her husband to a distant land. She could adapt to the life of a nomad, she, but she could not make her body conceive a child. She could not. But do you know that God gives us these could-nots on purpose? Because our could-nots highlight in bright living color God's cans. And that was his plan all along to make sure it was that she could not, only God can. And had she only grasped that truth, she would have spared herself and her household a lot of grief. But the time came when she was no longer content to leave things in God's hands or in Abraham's hands. She took things into her own hands. And we're going to look at Genesis 16, just a few chapters over, starting in verse 1. Genesis 16, 1 says, Now Sarai, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abraham, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant, and maybe that I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abraham had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abraham's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abraham, her husband, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abraham, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. And Abraham said to Sarah, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. And Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. Sarah's lack of trusting God in her own heart spilled over into her household with disastrous results. Hagar gets pregnant and treats Sarah with contempt. Sarah blames Abraham, who gives Sarah permission to treat Hagar harshly, which she does, and Hagar flees from her. Sarah's marriage is filled with tension and is struggling. Hagar is struggling out in the wilderness. Sarah herself is struggling, and all because she did not wait on God. 
She did not trust his timing or his plan, but God keeps his promises. And after an additional 13 years, Sarah's 90 years old, and God tells her she's going to have a son the next year, which she does. And we know that she still believed in God's promise, that she actually had always believed that God could make her pregnant. Hebrews 11.11 calls her out specifically and says, By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive, even when she was past the age, age, since she considered him faithful who had promised. 25 years after the first promise to Abraham, Sarah bore a son, whom she named Isaac, which means laughter, right? Proving that maybe she still had a sense of humor after 90 years of barrenness. <laughs> But that was God's perfect timing to wait that long so that the birth of that child was not according to the flesh so that Sarah could boast, but so that it was according to a promise so that only God could, only God would get the glory for that. So what do we learn from the life of Sarah? Well, 1 Peter 3 holds Sarah up as the epitome of a holy woman who hoped in God, as one who embodied a gentle and quiet spirit that expressed itself in her devotion and submission to Abraham to follow him, to obey him. And this she was most of the time. But in this one area of her life where she struggled, the one that she held most dear in her barrenness, she struggled to wait on God and to trust his timing and his plan. When there are things that we desire, even good things, these were good things, right? Giving Abraham a child and fulfilling God's promise, those were good things that she wanted. When there are good things we desire and God doesn't seem to be giving them to us, the solution is not to take matters into our own hands but to continually leave them in his, to wait for his timing, to trust his plan. If you feel as though there is something that God is withholding from you in some way, just remember Psalm 84:11 says, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. And I actually had to only pick one because that's all over the Bible. And I, I don't ever, as I was reading this, I don't ever want there to be an area in my life that I cannot have a gentle and quiet spirit in, that I cannot that I'm not content to leave in God's hands, wait on his timing and the wisdom of his plan with a gentle and quiet spirit. So the third woman on our list, so we're going to turn to the book of Ruth. I'll tell you it's hard to sum up Ruth in just a matter of minutes, but it's such a sweet book. She's the third woman on our list. Ruth was a Moabite. Moab was a nation marked by idolatry and immorality. They worshipped many gods in Moab, but they had a theological structure that they, they worshipped one god above their other gods, and that god's name was Chemosh. Chemosh regularly demanded child sacrifice as a form of worship. This would have been the culture in which Ruth grew up. Moab had a long and troubled history with the nation of Israel, and Moabite women in particular had a bad reputation in Israel. If you'll recall, back in Numbers 25, when the Israelite men had relationships with Moabite women that led to rampant idolatry and a plague that killed 24,000 Israelites. Ruth was a pagan idolater living in Moab, but God had a plan for Ruth to rescue her out of that darkness. And it began with a man named Elimelech from Bethlehem, who, along with his wife Naomi and their two grown sons, moved to Moab during a famine. This was arguably not a good idea to move to such an idolatrous nation. And very well, what follows after they moved there was the discipline of the Lord. Because shortly after arriving in Moab, Elimelech dies, leaving Naomi a widow with her two sons. But Naomi chooses not just to stay in Moab, but to actually allow her two sons to marry Moabite women. 
another not great idea. Um, and one of those women was Ruth. So Naomi stays there for 10 years, during which time both of her sons also die. Naomi is now a widow, she's childless, and she's destitute. She is in poverty, and she decides to return to Bethlehem and to go back. And at first, her daughters-in-law follow her, weeping, and she urges them to remain in Moab and try to find another husband. They were both widows. It would have been very difficult for a widow to provide for herself back in those days. And one of them goes back to Moab, but the other one, Ruth, the text says, clings to her. And here we see the first point on your outline that Ruth was a woman marked by steadfast love. She was a woman marked by steadfast love. And we see this first in her declaration in chapter 1, verse 16, as Naomi is urging her to go back to Moab. This is what Ruth says to her. In verse 16, it says, Do not, but Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. This statement is remarkable first in that Ruth is turning completely away from her people, the Moabites, and from her God, Chemosh, to Naomi's people, the Israelites, and to Yahweh, the God of Israel. Whether this moment right here is Ruth's conversion or whether that happens a bit later on in the book, Ruth does indeed forsake her idolatry and turn to the living God. And secondly, this statement, this declaration she makes is remarkable in its steadfast love to Naomi. There would have been nothing in it for Ruth to follow Naomi. She would have been following a poor widow back to a land that she didn't know where she would have had a bad reputation going in. And what's more, as the younger person in that relationship, Ruth would have been expected to provide for Naomi and to care for her. But Ruth was a woman marked by steadfast love, and she returns with her to Bethlehem. And it's barley harvest time, and Ruth soon makes good on her word. She goes to glean in the fields, right? She walks after the reapers, and whenever they miss a, a sheaf uh, and it, or they drop one, she would walk behind them and pick it up. And that was a provision that God gave for the poor um, back in Leviticus 19. So she comes to the fields of, a, of an upright man named Boaz, and he shows great kindness to Ruth, even inviting her to eat with his servants. And when Ruth asks him why he has shown her such kindness, we hear in his response, Ruth's reputation among the people in in Bethlehem. And we see this in Ruth chapter 2, starting in verse 11. And it says, But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. In a short amount of time, Ruth had proven herself to be a faithful woman in Bethlehem, marked by steadfast love for Naomi, who had sought refuge under the wings of the God of Israel. And as we're going to see, those wings did not fail her. The second point on your outline is that one of the sweetest parts about the book of Ruth. The story of Ruth highlights the beautiful picture of redemption. Highlights the beautiful picture of redemption. Boaz, we learn, was Naomi's, um, one of Naomi's close relatives. And that word for close relatives, just one word in the Hebrew, and it's sometimes translated kinsman redeemer, right? Literally in Hebrew, the word is goel. And a goel was a special kind of male relative who could do a few things that other relatives couldn't do. Um, a goel could buy back land if a family member had sold it under economic distress. 
He could buy back a family member if they had sold themselves into slavery under economic distress. And he could also marry the widow of a dead relative to raise up offspring in that dead relative's name. John MacArthur says that Goel was a relative who came to the rescue. And Boaz was one of Naomi's Goels. He was one of their redeemers. And so Naomi tells Ruth to actually propose to Boaz and ask him to redeem her. And there was, a, there was actually a culturally, a culturally appropriate way to do this at that time. Um, Ruth went down to the threshing floor one night and she laid down at Boaz's feet. And we're going to read their exchange here to see how she does this. And what she's doing is she's asking him to redeem her. She's asking him to marry her and by marrying her to redeem her and raise up offspring, right, for her dead husband. So in Ruth uh, chapter 3, beginning in verse 9, um, she's laying at his feet, and, and, and he said, Who are you? And she answered, I am Ruth, your servant. Spread your wings over your servant, for you are a redeemer. And he said, May you be blessed by the Lord, my daughter. You have made this last kindness greater than the first, and that you have not gone after young men, whether poor or rich. And now, my daughter, do not fear. I will do for you all that you ask, for all my fellow townsmen know that you are a worthy woman. Boaz calls Ruth a worthy woman. That, that word for worthy is the same word used of the Proverbs 31 woman, an excellent wife who can find. And this same word is actually used to describe Boaz in chapter 2. Ruth was a worthy woman. She was an excellent woman. And he redeems Ruth the next morning. Boaz redeemed Ruth out of her poverty, out of her widowhood. But there's a greater redeemer at work in the story of Ruth, as we know. Yahweh, the God of Israel, plucked Ruth out of the darkness and idolatry of Moab and brought her to a place where she could be provided for and redeemed. But not just that, right? We read later that Ruth and Boaz get married and they have a son whom they name Obed. Obed later grew up and had a son he named Jesse. Jesse later had a son he named David. Ruth was David's great-grandmother. God not only plucked Ruth out to redeem her from her poverty and her widowhood, but he gave her a place in the lineage of the Messiah. And she is mentioned there in, in the genealogy in Matthew 1. So what do we learn from the life of Ruth? Well, listen to the summary first um, of the women in Bethlehem. after They're speaking to Naomi after Ruth has given birth to Obed. It says this in chapter 4, verse 14. They say, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Ruth was a woman marked by steadfast love. But her story highlights even more so the remarkable steadfast love of Yahweh, right? Under that God, under whose wings she had come to take refuge, and she was not turned away. That same seed, that offspring that was promised to Eve, that same line that was continued through Abraham and Sarah, it's continued now in Ruth the Moabite. And like Ruth, it's just hard to talk about redemption and not talk about what Christ has done for us, right? Because we desperately needed to be redeemed. We were slaves to our sin, and we needed a redeemer. We needed a relative who came to our rescue. Jesus took on flesh, right, to become that relative. Just flip over really fast to Colossians 1. I was like, I don't have time to make them turn to Colossians 1, but I am going to have time to take you to Colossians 1 because... I, I look at the, the word redemption is all over the New Testament, and it's so sweet when you see it in this light. But in Colossians 1, verse 13, says this about Jesus. He has delivered us 
from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved hot son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is our kinsman redeemer, right? He's a relative who came to our rescue at an infinitely higher cost than Boaz. And that's cause for rejoicing and worship for us, right? For each one of us who has come to take refuge under his wings and we're not turned away. Okay, let's move on to the fourth woman. On our list, if you'd like to turn to Luke chapter 1, we're going to look at Mary. I named one of my children after her. And Mary, um, well, after thousands of years, right, the one promised to come from Eve's seed through Sarah's line and the roots is now about to finally come into the world. And he's going to do so in the most extraordinary way using the most ordinary means, the means of an average, ordinary young girl named Mary. Mary was living in the region of Galilee in the small city of Nazareth, which was a city of no importance at that time. It would be like saying Prescott in, in Arizona. Actually, I don't know. I don't want to offend anyone if you're from Prescott. It would have been a, something. Oh, Thatcher. My daughter's at a soccer game today in Thatcher. I'm like, where's Thatcher? Nazareth? It's like Thatcher. If anyone in here is from Thatcher, I'm just going to apologize right now. Let's move on to Mary. Um, Mary was young, and by young I mean... She was probably 13 or 14 years old. I don't know if anyone in this room is that old. On Saturday, they are. Um, Mary was a virgin. She, she was betrothed. She was legally engaged to a man named Joseph who was of the line of David. And that was important, of course, because the Messiah was going to come through the line of David, which Joseph was. Mary also was. Joseph came from David's son, Solomon. Mary came from David's other son, Nathan. And this betrothal, this engagement, was a year-long tradition. It was actually designed to test and prove each partner's faithfulness, fidelity to one another. The angel Gabriel is sent from God to Mary's house to give her the wondrous news that she will be the one to give birth to the long-promised Messiah. And we see the first point on your outline here, that in the face of life-changing news, Mary was quick to respond with humble submission. With humble submission. Read with me in Luke 1. We're going to go to 31 and, and then skip down. Gabriel says to her, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Go down to 34. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Mary would have grasped the implications of this announcement immediately. She was engaged to a man who was supposed to be proving her fidelity to him. For her to become pregnant at that juncture would not have been a good thing on the outside. She would have comprehended the public shame and scandal and scorn that would surely come her way, and yet here she only has one question for Gabriel. How will this be? And she isn't asking this question out of unbelief, like God can't do it, but confusion, literally, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Gabriel tells her the child will be conceived by the Holy Spirit, and Mary has no further questions. She believes. She believes what Gabriel says. And Elizabeth, a few verses later, is filled with the Holy Spirit and says this about Mary's faith. Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. Look, Mary believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her. She's a virgin and she's going to conceive a child by the Holy Spirit. She believes. No questions. And as we'll see from her song of praise, her Magnificat, in a moment, 
Mary already believed that nothing was impossible with God long before Gabriel told her that nothing was impossible with God. How was Mary able to respond with humble submission? Well, first, Mary knew who she was. Read her response in Luke 1.38. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary calls herself the servant of the Lord. That word in the Greek is doulos, which traditionally is translated as slave. Mary, as young as she was, saw herself as the servant, as the slave of God. He was her master. He was sovereign over her whole life. So she submitted quickly to his will for her. She knew who she was. And we see this later in her Magnificat as she talks about how she needed mercy. She needed a savior. She knew who she was. And secondly, Mary was able to respond this way because not only did she know who she was, but she knew who God was. And here we see the second point on your outline that Mary's foundational theology is evident from her joyful proclamation. From her joyful proclamation. She goes to meet with her cousin Elizabeth, and Mary is met with this Holy Spirit-filled blessing from Elizabeth. And after that confirmation, Mary bursts forth into a song of praise. It's called Mary's Magnificat. Uh, Magnificat is just Latin for magnifies. It comes from the first word here, magnifies. And as we read through this, which we're going to do, I just want you to note the depth at which Mary, at 14 years old, knew the character of her God. Read with me, starting in, in verse 46. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in, rem in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. So look at the attributes that she knows and she proclaims here. God's holiness, his mercy, his strength, his power, his ability to save. But there's actually more going on here than that um, because these verses are actually filled with allusions to Old Testament passages. She uses biblical language, phrases, ideas, themes that are repeated all over the Old Testament. And what this tells us is that Mary knew her Old Testament Bible very well. In fact, if you look at the similarities between this prayer, this song of Mary's and Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel chapter 2, there are overlapping similarities there. Mary knew Hannah's prayer. Those ideas, what was so striking to me this time as I was reading through this is that Mary is not saying anything new in her Magnificat. She's not saying anything original. She is rather proclaiming joyfully the same magnificent character of God that Hannah proclaimed, that David proclaimed in the Psalms, that Isaiah proclaimed. He's the same God. And she knew who he was. Her heart is so filled with God's word that when her circumstances kind of scratched her, this is what bled out of Mary, right? At 14 years old, Mary knew who she was and she knew who her God was. It was Mary's theology that enabled her to respond with such humble submission to the Lord's will for her life. So what do we learn from the life of Mary? Well, Mary had been reading her Bible and believing it for a long time. 
And so the day when God brought something wonderful and difficult into her life, she didn't have to wrestle with him about it. She didn't have to ask him any questions about it. She had only to submit to and praise him in it. So do we see ourselves this way? Do we see ourselves as the slave of the Lord, ready to yield to his will for us because we trust that it is better than our own and he's our master, right? Are we reading our Bibles, of which, by the way, we have so much more than Mary had, so that when difficult things come our way, what comes out of us is a scripture-saturated song of praise. We talk about this. Our responses to their trials in our lives, they're not born in a moment. They are bred throughout a lifetime of knowing God's word and believing it. And again, that's discipline one, right, with our heart and Bible reading. Well, now we get to turn to the fifth lady on our list, to the uh, just one chapter over, to chapter two of Luke. We're going to look at Anna. I love Anna. I mean, I love all of them. I don't have a favorite. <clears throat> we just looked at someone very young, and now we're going to go to the other end of the spectrum. We're going to look at someone very old. I mean, not very old. I don't want to offend her. I don't know. Um, older. <laughs> well, she was actually very old, I think. Anyway, so... Um, <clears throat> Mary has just given birth to Jesus. The long-awaited Messiah has arrived. And Luke 3.15 actually tells us that at this point in Israel's history, all the people were in expectation, right? When John the Baptist came, they were all wondering if he could be the Christ. Everyone was looking for the Messiah. And the irony of this is that all these Israelites, they're looking for their Messiah, but so few of them actually recognized him when he came. I mean, there was Mary and Joseph and the shepherds. There was a man named Simeon in the temple, and then there was Anna, right? All that we know about Anna is contained in just three verses in our Bibles, but we actually learn quite a bit about her. So read with me in Luke 2, starting in verse 36. It says, And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer, night and day. So Anna, we learned, was from the tribe of Asher. And this was a historically faithless northern tribe. So it's interesting that somewhere along the line, Anna's family had become part of the believing remnant because she's now in Jerusalem. But the first thing we read about Anna is that she was a prophetess. And this means just what it sounds like. She had the gift of prophecy, just the same as a man. She had been married, and it tells us that she was advanced in years. She'd been married likely when she was Mary's age, right, for seven years before her husband died, leaving her a widow. And there's some ambiguity regarding, I don't know if your Bible has a footnote, mine does, next to 84, but there's a little bit of ambiguity regarding whether this text is saying that she was 84 years old total or whether she had lived 84 years after becoming a widow, which would have made her closer to 104, which would be very old, right? Um, so for our purposes, we're going to say that she was 84 years old. Either way, she had been a widow for a long time. But that loss did not deter Anna from a life spent in faithful worship and being useful to the Lord. Just lost my place for a second. <laughs> she did not depart from the temple is what it says, right? Literally, the Greek word, uh, the Greek here has the word not, followed by an imperfect verb, which means to leave. So she continually did not leave the temple and worshiping or serving, right, with fasting and prayer night and day. And this woman did not fast for the sake of fasting. Right? She, was, she was waiting for something and longing for something and looking for something, for someone, for the Messiah, right? 
forward who she's going to get to meet in just a moment. And this idea of fasting, um, it's not anywhere commanded, but there was an expectation in Jesus when he's talking about himself being the bridegroom and how his disciples don't fast when he's with them, but when he leaves, then they'll fast. There was an expectation in Jesus that people would fast once he leaves, right? This was Anna before the Messiah came, fasting and waiting for him to come because he wasn't there. And she spends 64 years praying and fasting. This was devotion. And so the first thing that we see in Anna's life was that she, she, hers was a life marked by undeterred devotion, by undeterred devotion. There were others like Anna who were, as we're going to see in the next verse, waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Anna knew that the Messiah was coming, and she was worshiping and fasting and just waiting, looking for him to come. She's possibly one of the most devout people that we see on the pages of Scripture, because I, I can't think of anyone else who fasted and prayed for 64 years like that, that we know of. But Anna was not on an island of devotion, right? Um, and this is where we see the second point on your outline, that she did not hesitate to open her mouth and faithfully testify about Christ faithfully testify about Christ. And it wasn't the dead sea of devotion being poured into, right, and never pouring out. She was a rushing river where God's word collected in her and then spilled out of her through prophecy and encouragement to all of those who, like her, were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. We see this in her prophesying, but we also see this when on one day, after a lifetime spent fasting and praying and waiting for the Messiah, God, in his manifold kindness, let her see him with his own eyes, with her own eyes. So read Luke 2.38. And coming up at that very hour when Jesus is in the temple, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Anna comes up just when Mary and Joseph bring, brings Jesus into the temple to make their sacrifices and Simeon, the other man in the temple, recognized him as the Messiah. He's blessing God. And Anna, too, recognizes Jesus, even as a baby, as that one she had been fasting and longing to see for her entire life. That seed that was promised to Eve back in Genesis 3 to crush the head of the serpent. And she gives thanks to God, and she opens her mouth, and she speaks. She begins to speak of him to all of those around her. And those, those verbs there for giving thanks and for speaking, they're both in the imperfect, suggesting that she was just doing it continually. John MacArthur's title to his chapter um, in 12 Extraordinary Women on Anna is subtitled The Faithful Witness. Long before Peter came or Paul, this elderly devoted widow was a witness to Jesus Christ, to everyone around her. So what do we learn from the life of Anna? Anna's, picture, Anna's life is a picture of wholehearted, undeterred devotion to God. She spent her life speaking God's word to others. Are we marked by that kind of devotion? Does God's word spill out of us to those around us? But I think what we learn most from Anna's life is how well she waited and longed for the coming of the Messiah. Do we do this? Because, my friends, he's coming again, right? We are still waiting. Jesus promised in 14.3, I will come again. Are we waiting for and longing for and looking for him to come back? We might not be able to outfast Anna. We might not be able to outpray her for 64 years. But oh, can we spend the rest of our years, however long we have here, doing the same thing and waiting for him to come back? The bridegroom, he's not here, 
right? And we long for him to be here. This world is broken. We want him to come back and he will come back. Are we waiting for him and longing for him to do just that? First Thessalonians 4, just to give you some New Testament passages, tells us that the Lord will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the dead in Christ will rise first and then we who are still alive will be caught up together with them to meet the Lord. And then it commands us, therefore, encourage one another with these words, right? Titus 2, 11 through 14 tells us that the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to live upright, godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. 2 Peter 3 talks about the day of the Lord, wherein the, the heavens will pass away and that it exhorts us in verse 11, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord? Because according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We are waiting. Jesus is coming back. Are you waiting, right? Are you longing for this? Well, now we get to come to the last woman on our list. Her name is Lydia. She's in Acts chapter 16, if you'd like to turn there. The context here is Paul embarking upon his second missionary journey. He takes with him Silas and Timothy and Luke, the author of Acts. But some curious things happen on this journey. For one, the Holy Spirit forbids Paul and his companions to speak the word in Asia. And instead, Paul receives a vision of a man in Macedonia asking him to come over and help him. Now, this was significant because Macedonia was in Europe. And up until this point, the gospel had not gone to Europe. It had only gone to Asia. So Paul set sail with his companions for Macedonia, which was on the mainland of Greece. And the first main city they come to is the city of Philippi. Philippi was a busy, thriving center of trade. It was a Roman colony. It had originally been settled by Roman army veterans, right? So it was a colony. It had all the rights and privileges of Rome. It wasn't taxed. People could own land. They spoke Latin. And this is our setting when we meet Lydia. And the first point on your outline that we're going to see about her is that God positioned Lydia exactly where she needed to be in order to hear the gospel. So we're going to read, starting in verse 13. In Acts 16. And then, well, actually, we're going to start in verse 12. This is Paul describing his journey. So from there, we went to Philippi, which is a leading city of the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. We remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we supposed there was a place of prayer, and we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. So Paul's custom was to go to the synagogue first, and all of these places that he went. The gospel goes to the Jews first, and then to the Gentiles. But evidently, Philippi did not have the required 10 Jewish men to start a synagogue. So he goes outside to the riverside and he finds only women gathered there. But Paul doesn't despise this group, either because they were women or because in his vision he had seen a Macedonian man, right? But instead he preaches to them the same gospel as he always did. And Lydia is there to hear it. Read with me in verse 14. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. So Lydia was from the city of Thyatira, which ironically was in the exact province in Asia where Paul had been forbidden to speak by the Holy Spirit. Had she been in her hometown, she would not have been at the riverside this day to hear Paul. He wouldn't have been able to go to her. Thyatira was famous for its guild of 
highly sought after purple dye. It, was, it wasn't purple, it was like a reddish purple called Tyrian purple. And this dye was extremely valuable because it was so rare. And it was rare because um, it was very difficult to produce. It came from a very particular sea snail called a murex. And the way that you got the color out, it came from the mucus secretions in the snail's glands. And you had to poke it to make it mad. And then it would secrete one or two drops at a time of this dye. So one source said it would take 12,000 snails to produce 1.4 grams of purple dye, enough to color the trim of a single garment. This color was reserved for really only royalty or the very wealthy. And Lydia, it says, was a seller of purple goods. And coming from Thyatira, she was the real deal. So her goods would have been highly sought after. She, she had a very good business. And she, this means she not only owned her own business, but she was very profitable. She was likely very wealthy. She was at least wealthy enough, we know, to maintain a household, which likely included servants, as we're going to see. And we're told one more thing about Lydia. We're told that she was a worshiper of God. So she might have been an Old Testament believer, or perhaps at this point it was only intellectually that she knew that the God of Israel was the true God. But either way, God had positioned her exactly where she needed to be to hear that forgiveness of sins is found in the name of Jesus Christ alone. So read the rest of verse 14. It says, The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul. The Greek verb here for pay attention is a lot stronger than how it's translated. Lenski says that the idea of this Greek word is to keep holding our mind to what we hear, right? It was the Lord who gave Lydia, who opened her heart and, and made her keep holding her mind to what she heard being said by Paul. And isn't this how anyone is saved? Even Ephesians 2 tells us that prior to God doing this in our hearts, right? Opening our hearts and giving us minds to keep holding to what we hear in the gospel to save us. That we are dead in our transgressions and sins. It's him and him alone who makes dead things come to life. So the agent at work here in this passage, far more than Lydia or Paul, is the Lord. Read the first part of verse 15. It says, and after she was baptized and her household as well, so she's baptized, right? And her household is baptized. Do you see how quickly her heart spreads to her household? They had no doubt known Lydia already as a worshiper of God, and now they know her as a believer in Jesus Christ, and they are impacted by that. And they believe too and are baptized. And we come to the second point in our outline now, that she was quick, Lydia was quick to use the resources God had given her for hospitality. Read with me the last part of verse 15. And she, after she was baptized in her household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed on us. Lydia urges Paul and Silas and Timothy and Luke and likely others who were in their party to stay with her in her house. This invitation implies that they probably didn't have proper accommodations. They had only been in Philippi for a short time. But just think about what she's offering here, because housing and feeding a minimum of four grown men for an indefinite period of time, and we know they were there for weeks, if not months, was no small task for Lydia to offer to do. And it wasn't just a material cost that would have been involved here. The, the rest of the chapter, of chapter 16 in Acts, has Paul and Silas being thrown into prison in Philippi for casting a demon out of a slave girl. This was, a, this was a Roman town. The gospel was not accepted or loved. So there would have likely been a cost maybe to Lydia's business, maybe even a risk to her own life. 
And yet, she's not just hospitable. She was persistently hospitable. It says, and she prevailed upon us, which implies that maybe Paul refused the offer at first, maybe not wanting to impose on her. She was persistently hospitable. We read about Lydia one more time in the Bible, and that's at the end of this chapter. After Paul and Silas are released from prison, they go to visit Lydia. And it says in verse 40, when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them, and then they left Philippi. So evidently, Paul and Silas had been in Philippi long enough to start a small church, and that church likely met at Lydia's house. She was hospitable, even with having the church in her home. So what do we learn from the life of Lydia? Well, first, it's sweet. We see a beautiful picture of all three disciplines sort of intertwined. Her heart is affected. It moves very swiftly to her household for the gospel, right? And then, and she's eager then to turn to ministry within her own home for the sake of the gospel. Are we eager, like, it, like Lydia, to use the resources that God has given us, to use our homes for hospitality to those around us? And we also see God's kindness and salvation to Lydia. The gospel comes to Europe for the first time. You know who it comes to? A Gentile businesswoman who, who was from Asia, right? And that's what he's done for each one of us. If you're a believer in this room, he positioned us exactly where we needed to be to hear the gospel and to have him open our hearts to keep holding our minds to hear it. And after receiving such mercy and having our dead hearts be made alive, how could we not then turn around with open hands and show hospitality, having received so much ourselves? So now we're going to step back and survey these women together because there's something really special that they all have sort of in common. And that is the fact that through these six women, you can actually trace the, the, the whole work of, of the Messiah. Because the same seed that was promised to Eve in Genesis 3 that would crush the head of the serpent. That same line was continued through Abraham and Sarah, right? With the promise that all of the nations would be blessed through them. And then that same line was continued through Ruth, Ruth the Moabite and Boaz, who became the great-great-grandmother of King David, from whom that same Messiah line would be continued, all the way down until Mary, who was from the line of David, was told that she would be the one to give birth to that long-promised and awaited Messiah, and that his name would be Jesus. That same Messiah that Anna had been praying for for 64 years and longing for, and then finally saw with her own eyes. And that same name of Jesus Christ, that same Messiah that came to save his people from their sins, not just Jews, right, but Gentiles, like a, like a woman named Lydia, right, who's a, on business in Philippi, who hears the name of Jesus and receives forgiveness of sins in his name. God's plan, promised way back in Genesis 3, was quietly worked out in, in a once innocent woman, in a woman barren for 90 years, in a Moabite woman, in an ordinary Jewish teenager, in an elderly widow, in a Gentile businesswoman. And that same plan, it actually continues to be worked out today with each and every one of us. So if you're here, you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are another evidence of God's promises kept, of his plan being worked out, of his power to save. No matter what season of life you're in, young or old, we've seen all of these categories in these women and on the pages of scripture. Or if you're rich or if you're poor, if you're single, if you're married, if you're widowed, if you're barren, no matter how far off you've been or how close you've been kept, God sent his appointed Messiah to suffer for your sins so that he could offer you forgiveness from that sin and make you his adopted child. That's grace. That's mercy. 
And today we rejoice under the same promise that he offered to Eve in the garden and that same hope he offered to Sarah, the same wings he offered Ruth, the same mercy he offered Mary, the same redemption he offered Anna, and the same salvation he offered Lydia. And along with those friends, we have so much more than they have because we get to see the entire life of Jesus Christ lived out on the pages of scripture and the entire New Testament. And that is our God, that the God of those women is still our God today and what a God he is. May we be moved to worship him like those women did, emulate their faith where they excelled, learn from where they faltered, and love him more for who he is. Let's pray. Father, I'm just so thankful for your, for your word. It is infallible, and it's good, and it's all for our instruction. And these women who lived so long ago, especially Eve, lived so long ago, Lord, and under different languages and different cultures, and yet, Lord, um, God, we have the same hope that they had, and that hope, it hasn't changed. If anything, Lord, we just see it more clearly than they ever got to see it, God. We thank you that you keep your promises and that Jesus came and was worked out through ordinary people and mostly ordinary circumstances. And God, even when things seem so ordinary around us, you are still working out your plan and he is coming back. Lord Jesus, you are coming back. I just pray that we would be women who know the character of our God, who believe that character, who rejoice and, and declare that character to each other and to the, the dark and lost world around us, and that we would be women who long for you to come back, Jesus, that we would be waiting for you and looking for you, Lord, and telling other people about you so that they might be saved as we have been saved in your mercy and your grace. I just pray for the women in this room. I'm just so thankful to be in the body of Christ with them. I pray that we would leave from this study of these women impacted um, and, and wanting to emulate the things they did well and, and wanting to be warned from where they faltered, Lord, that you might get the glory out of our lives. Not that we would boast, but that you would get the glory, Lord. It's in the name of your great son that we pray. Amen.